People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Ellen Warner is our guest today on Health Gig, and we are so excited to introduce all of you to Ellen. Ellen is a photojournalist and has photographed all over the world, and she has been published in newspapers and magazines and has exhibited extensively. Ellen has written travel articles for the New York Times and all kinds of other publications, and she specializes in author portraits and has worked for most of the publishing houses in New York and London. Her new book, which we're going to talk about today, The Second Half, 40 Women Reveal Life After 50, is a collection of photographs and life stories. We cannot wait to dive deep into this conversation with you today, Ellen. Welcome. Thank you. So nice to be here. Trisha and I are very excited to have this opportunity to interview with you because we love your new book that's just come out called The Second Half, 40 Women Reveal Life After 50. And I read that you started each interview by asking the women their life story. So we want to begin the same way. Tell us about you, how you became a photojournalist and how you decided to write this beautiful book. I grew up in New York and I went to school in New York. I went away to boarding school and then college. And then the year I graduated from college, I took a road trip, sort of like Thelma and Louise, and drove down (laughs) to Mexico City and up the West Coast of the country and across the country. And I took some pictures. I love taking pictures. Then the next year, I worked at the Ford Foundation editing grants, and I took a night course in photography. And then I asked the Ford Foundation if I could work there just in the mornings and take a career course in the afternoons. And I was the only woman in the school, as it turned out. And at the end of that year, there was a contest that was sponsored by the Department of the Interior. And they picked four people to work on a project photographing New York City for nine months. They picked an African-American, a Hispanic man, me, the only woman in the school, and a very deserving Caucasian man. (laughs) And so that got me launched into photography. And then many years later, this book started 15 years ago when I was photographing a beautiful French woman called Jacqueline Delia, and she had just turned 70. And I was in my 50s. And you know, when I photograph people, I usually try and make them feel comfortable. So I talk about nothing or whatever. But this time I found myself asking her, what's it like to be 70? How have you changed over the years? How have your interests changed, your values changed? And what advice would you give to a younger woman like me? And I left that photo shoot and I thought, I want to know what it's like to be 80. I want to know what it's like to be 90. I want to know what it's like to be 107 as the oldest woman in the book is. So that was the beginning of the second half. The first person you photographed was the woman you just mentioned who was in Greece. Was she the one in Patmos? Yes. Yes. Yeah. In the book, when people buy it for Christmas presents, there are famous women and then there are not so famous women, but all of them are remarkable. How did you find the women for the book? In a variety of ways. Sometimes people recommended people and other times, for example, we were in Bali on a vacation. I saw this beautiful woman on the side of the street during a procession. And I happened to be walking with the lady that we'd rented our house from. And I said, who is that woman? And she said, well, she's my auntie. And I didn't realize at that point that they called everybody their auntie. I said, well, I'd love to photograph her and interview her. 
she said, well, I can translate for you. And so that's how I found her. And then sometimes, not everybody that I photographed and interviewed in the book, because sometimes you got a terrific photograph and the interview wasn't so good, meaning that the person wouldn't really open up. So I really narrowed it down to the women that I thought both had good photographs and also good interviews that would tell people something. I guess as a photographer, though, because you were saying when you take pictures of people, you have to make them feel comfortable. Do you kind of get that you become an expert in personalities, too, in a way? You know, I had never interviewed anybody before, so this was a first. When I first started, I just had this list of questions that I asked them. Then I thought, well, this is sort of boring unless the people know yeah. who these people are, you know. <laughs> right. And so then I started to ask them for a quick recap of their life story, and I would edit pieces of that for their interview. I also started to interview them before I photographed them. They felt comfortable with me at that point. They'd shared some of the things that had been hardest in their life. And so they knew that they could trust me. And that makes it easier. You sort of have to fall in love with your subject when you interview them to get a yeah, good picture. I, I mean, when you photograph them to get a good picture. It's really fun. You know, when I go to somebody's house to photograph, you know, you walk in and you're talking to them, but you're immediately looking around. Where is a good background? And, you know, what are they wearing and that kind of thing? It's so interesting because it really makes you stay right there, right there, because you're looking at color. Like you're saying, you're looking at this, you're looking at that. That's so fascinating. Yeah. But speaking of color, you chose black and white. I think you're either a color photographer or a black and white photographer, but particularly for portraits, I like black and white because it takes away the things that aren't essential and you get right to the person. You're not distracted by, you know, the orange in that curtain over there or something. And, you know, the biggest influence on me actually has not been other photographers, but I studied history of art in college. And so the composition of a picture is really important to me. That's sort of the way I approach it. What I think are so beautiful about the photographs while we're talking about them, it's not the beauty of looking young or perfect, but the expressions on their faces, the dignity, the grace, the experience, you can see the understanding. I know that you photographed based on the interview first, but how did you capture the expressions? How do you do that as a photographer? I've never really thought about it that way. It's hard to articulate, but you know, you talk to somebody and you're photographing them and all of a sudden you think, oh, that's a good expression. They're thinking about something or, you know, they've turned their head this way and that's a really good as far as composition is concerned. So I don't really know, I guess is the short answer. It just sort of comes instinctively. But, you know, all women are beautiful. It's just getting them to feel comfortable and sort of in the right background, really. I love that, what you just said, like all women are beautiful. And I think that's true too, you know? I think that's true. I would imagine the more you get to know them and the questions, which I can't wait to dive into, as you unravel them as a person, they've just become more beautiful and more beautiful. Dang, yes, yeah. well, if, if they open I love up. That. Right, and it's sort of like in life too, you know? Like when someone opens up, you're like, ah, but they don't, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Yes, yes. Their inside beauty comes out. Their wisdom comes out. And that's what I was after, is what can they teach me? What can they teach younger women? And actually, the things that they spoke about are valuable for younger women, older women, as far as mental health and how to conduct your lives. 
Tell us about that. You know, what did you find out? What is it that we need to know? (laughs) There were several themes that came out. The first thing was that the second half of life is better than the first, which was really reassuring. And, you know, a younger friend of mine said, that sounds like turning lemons into lemonade. (laughs) But, you know, it was said with real conviction. By the time you reach that age, you know who you are. You know what your interests are. You don't care what other people think about you the way you might when you're in your 20s or something. You're comfortable with yourself. But anyway, the things that I learned from them, there are quite a few themes. And one of them was that as you get older, you have to widen your horizons. Jacqueline Delia said, you have to make sure that your mind doesn't shrink together with your body. And it's the best way to stay awake is to broaden your horizons. And she also said at the same time, you have to cultivate an inside space where you can retreat whether it has to do with religion or meditation or whatever it has to do when times get tough, you have to cultivate that as you get older. And Christina Krent, who was the first woman television anchor in Paris, said, do something you've never done before as you get older, and that will keep you young. And then there was this wonderful woman called Lulu Balcom, who was, she was at least 95, I think, when I interviewed her. And she said to me, I'm going to Burma next February if, if I'm still here. (laughs) <laughs> you know, she said, she said, curiosity has been the most important thing for me. I was just going to say that, curiosity. One of the stories that struck me was, and I might not be saying her name right, Jean Angela? Angel. Angel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jean Angel. She was the one who made the choice to live artificially after her diagnosis of Lou Gehrig's disease. I just found it to be remarkable. She talked about her desire to continue to love and be loved. This was her purpose. What did you think of her and where did her strength come from? I thought she was amazing. She taught me that the way you react to somebody who's disabled is the way they react to their disability. And with Jean, her eyes were synced to a computer and she couldn't move a muscle in her body except for her eyes. She would type out T-H-E space. And then at the end, she'd blink on something and the computer would talk for her. She was absolutely remarkable. She said, I don't have a future like everybody else's future, but I can still continue to love and be loved. And when she got this disease, none of her three children were married and she lived to see them married, have children and the grandchildren You know, somebody was telling me the other day, I didn't know this story, but that she had said to one of her grandchildren, you know, when you have friends over, because they had a big house in the summer where everybody came. And she said to one of her grandchildren, if you have friends over and you're embarrassed about me, I don't need to be there or whatever. And because she said that, the grandchildren were never embarrassed about her. And they would come up, they called her Minnie, and they would come up and, you know, throw their arms around. This is my Minnie. But, you know, Jean, she said she was a lawyer and her legal training taught her to approach a problem and look for ways to resolve it. And that might have helped her a bit with this disease as well. But she said she could help others understand that they don't need to accept defeat, that they can continue to enjoy life no matter how big the obstacles and that doing so is within their power. The struggle has its own rewards. She was an inspiration to so many people. I think that's a real example of how to deal with adversity as you get older. There's another woman in the book who couldn't turn over in bed for a year. She said that one transforms through creativity and suffering, but mostly through suffering. And she said that somebody said to her, you have to look for what this experience is trying to teach you. And she said, once they said that, it was a whole different experience. 
Because of course, mm. so many of us, as we get older, have disabilities, things that right. hold us back. There are a lot of women in your book who overcame adversity. Odette Walling was the prisoner at Ravensbrück. Her description of living in the camp was just absolutely shocking to me. What was she like? And what did you come away with when you interviewed her? Oh, she was terrific. First of all, the interview had been set up. And when I went to her door, she welcomed me in and was very gracious. But one of her first words were, I'm not going to be interviewed. I'm not going to be interviewed. <laughs> My family has been so manipulative you know, in setting this up. And so I sat down and I started to take notes and we talked for about an hour. And then I realized that she said that she usually spent most of her days in bed. You know, she was all dressed up and looking beautiful and elegant. So without asking, I thought, Ellen, you just have to be brave. I set up the tripod and I started to take pictures. And then she became really part of the process. Do you want me to sit here or there? She was no nonsense. She was the sort of person who could be terribly gruff, but was also very loving. And her bravery was such that, you know, somebody had ratted on her. She was in the resistance in France and another resistance person had been tortured and gave her name. And so she was arrested and tortured horribly, but she persevered. Amazing. Did any of them go back to who their mentors were or who their people were? Well, no, I think that one person, Dodie Rosecrantz, said she attributed all her happiness in life to the psychoanalysis that she'd had when she was a young person. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, it laid the groundwork. (laughs) I know, but I can't think of any mentors that, and actually now I'm starting a book on men, and I thought one question that would be interesting would be, who were your mentors? Yeah, who were your mentors? That would be fun to know. I was really intrigued with Ada Gates. She was a farrier, which I had no idea what that was. (laughs) And the first woman in North America licensed to shoe thoroughbred horses. I thought that was an amazing story. It was an incredible story. And she had such a hard time because, you know, no man wanted her in that profession. As you read, probably, you know, one of her early teachers that was teaching her how to shoe horses threw a snake at her said, I don't want a woman in my class, but you've got to stay here. Otherwise, it would be illegal of me to throw you out. But I don't want no woman here. And she said afterwards, that man was actually a great man. He tested her and tested her and tested her. And she had to prove- Kind of became a mentor. Yes. And she had to prove that she was up to it. And then she failed her first exam. You know, it was so funny because she said usually four people came to the exam to be a farrier, which is, you know, as you said, to shoe thoroughbred racehorses. But- The whole group came. They'd never seen a woman apply for this before. Then she failed her first exam by just a tiny little bit. She said she actually started to cry. And she said, one man said, we've never had anybody cry here before. (laughs) (laughs) Then she went away and she did it again and she passed. You know, I'm just sitting here thinking it was a different time for women. Yes, you're right. It was. So it'll be interesting with the book of men. It was such a different time for them. Do you know what I mean? So it will be an interesting kind of story. And also the fact that you really shared with all these women that position of being the only woman. Do you know what I mean? As you were the photographer and chosen and the only person. Yeah, I never thought about that. It's kind of amazing as the author of this, you also were one of those that were breaking barriers or seeing things different. Because I do think that the women 
well, Dora and I are a little bit behind the really strong women, but the women that come before us, as you talk about, are different. They're just different. It's so awesome that you kind of dug into this, you know, because it's a treasure. They really are. And I they think that, the way. Um, but also, you know, there are women in this book that nobody have ever heard of, like a Tuareg right. woman in Southern Algeria and the magic woman in Bali. And I think one reason this book has been so successful is because it is international and because it's not just famous people. There are some famous right. people like Olivia de Havilland and Leslie Cameron, whatever, but there are a lot of people who aren't. Roxy Beaujolais, who came over to England on a cargo ship when she was 16. She was the only passenger and wow. from Australia. And I love her story because she said that the first place where she worked, the person said, we've got another person here with your name. You've got to change your name. And <laughs> so I don't know if she saw a bottle of Beaujolais or whatever it was, but she said, okay, I'll be Roxy Beaujolais. And she's been Roxy Beaujolais oh, ever that's since. that's so cute. I love that. But it is true. That's where I think we do get our strengths. And again, such a gift that you've given all of us, this idea that you don't have to be famous to be strong. You don't have to. Your story is one that you're creating. Exactly. You have so much power and sometimes you don't realize it. Lama Yeshe, who was a Buddhist Lama who had been in the fashion industry for her first half of her life and then became a Buddhist Lama, her advice to younger women would be, you have power, use your power wisely and compassionately. You know, you have more power than you think you do. And another theme that came out in the book over and over again was the power of forgiveness, the importance of forgiveness. It's important to forgive yourself, first of all. Various people said that. Also, it's important to forgive others because if you don't forgive others, you're going to be angry and sad yourself. Happiness does not come from holding grudges. So true. And also, as you get older, if you're not forgiving, your world can get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. So that curiosity piece probably dies with that too. You know what I mean? Yes. Because it's yes, taking exactly. too much space not yeah. to forget. It's true. What was the most surprising thing that you learned from these women The surprising thing for me was that the second half was better than the first, but there were other things. I mean, another piece of advice that several people said was that you have to be disciplined. And Leslie Caron, who, as you probably know, was a famous actress in Gigi, younger people may not have heard of her, but she said that she learned how to be disciplined as a dancer in the first half of her life, and it's really helped her in the second. One way of being disciplined is the cigarettes that you don't smoke, the drinks that you don't drink, the food that you eat. But also, Perla Servan-Schriber, who started Psychology Magazine, said that every morning she wakes up early and she meditates for half an hour. And that's discipline. You need discipline to do that. But she also said something really interesting. She said, love is not only a gift. You have to work at it. You have to be conscious. It's a job. You have to say, of course, I've got a lot of work to do today, but I'm going to go and visit my friend and bring her some happiness. And I'd never thought of that. So in a way, that's one of the things that has stayed with me. That's so interesting because you know how we talk about the power of habits or the power of all that. The idea that she's made that sort of her life, it's her, this decision that I will love. It's a choice and I can choose to love somebody who's hurt me, but I could also look at the things that they've done that have been positive and choose to love. And, you know, she said, my life is a love story because I have love at the center of it. You know, if somebody hurts you, you can certainly acknowledge that hurt. You don't want to be a mimsy pimsy, you know, whatever. (laughs) Right, right. Forgiveness is important. 
You mentioned Olivia de Havilland earlier, and from reading her story in your book, she seems like a joyful person, or seemed like a joyful person. I loved her. She had funny advice and good advice. And one of the good advice was, don't try to be any other age than you are. <laughs> yes. She said, you've had that age already. Why would you yeah, want to repeat that's it? That's so good. That's <laughs> so good. Here's another age before you and how thrilling it is. Learn all it has to give you. And then about the champagne. <laughs> Oh, yes. She said, what was it? That she usually had three glasses of champagne. Now it was down to two or something. And maybe it would go down to one. And she said afterwards, maybe we should have a glass in the photograph. <laughs> yeah, it's hysterical because it's a to big part To get the of point me. across. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. That's so, so awesome. cute. I'd love to hear these stories. These are awesome to talk about these specific people. But as I was thinking, and I think what you're teaching us is to take these nuggets and how do we create this amazing life. Yeah, it's incredible what you've built here. I think that older women, when they look at this book, they'll recognize a lot of things that they're very familiar with, but they'll also probably learn something new as you learn from, you know, a different, somebody who's had slightly different experience and you'll say, oh, actually that's true. I recognize that. The point was really also for younger women because it teaches them what they need to do to be happy. Also, I think what you were doing is so, and Dora and I were talking about this when she came so excited about, oh, we have another really good guest for healthcare (laughs) that she had met, but how you've tackled ageism in a very obviously creative way, in a real way. And I wonder if you think by doing that, since you started this 15 years ago, where you see it is now, and have you been able to change a little bit of that narrative? Well, I don't know if I've changed the narrative, but I think ageism is a lot less now. You know, you look at people like Judy Woodruff, who's been a TV anchor for so long and is retiring. And I think women are really starting to, and I think maybe it's the baby boomers, you know, they're starting to really still be a force in their third quarter of life, whatever you call it, third of life. I think that's right. I think the sort of the highlight and the discussion and talking about this has sort of brought it to that, you know, I mean, realize that we have money. We can spend money the way you couldn't when you're young and really impact different things and choose social issues that might be important to us. Do you know what I mean? That actually can kind of change. Or even if you don't have money, you can speak out about these issues. You can, you know, you can be involved. Yes. Or not focus on things that aren't as important. I think all of your women that you interviewed sort of helped us tease that through. Like, let's find what's important to us. Absolutely. It's different for each person, but there's always something. You have to have a passion. And that passion could be collecting butterflies or reading about medieval history, you know, anything, but something that really excites you and that keeps you vibrant. And I wonder too, when you tapped into this with these women, is there something about wise women that want to teach? Like you gave them an opportunity to share their knowledge. Is that something you found that people wanted to do? You had to bring that out. No, no, no. I think people were really interested in that. And you can learn so much from older women. I'm in a sort of women's discussion group. And when I joined it, I guess I was in my early 40s and there were women in their 90s in it. And I was fascinated by them. You know, you learn a lot. And now, you know, I'm in my 70s and I really enjoy my friends who were in their 40s and, you know, and in my 80s. Sometimes like I'm with like Dora, we were at that baby shower with these young moms or all that. For a minute there, I'm like, yeah. 
that me too. Like, yeah. Oh, you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you sort of forget what age you are. You yeah. know, and suddenly you realize that somebody else is looking at you as an older. Right. You know, right. Older. Yeah. And then we have to yeah. kind of move back into that role. But for a minute, it is true. And I think that is happening more now. You know, I think women, like you said, it's kind of blending a little bit more. Well, yeah. life is less formal now. It used to be much more formal, I think, you know. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. It is less formal. In many ways, good and bad. I mean, the way my children talked to me was not the way I ever spoke uh, yeah, to my mother. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and they're, you know, it's, they probably did that because they knew me better, you know, but whatever. That's a good point. What I thought was an interesting point in the introduction by Erica Jong, she talked about the ultimate wisdom as acceptance of how time changes us and how we accept ourselves on the inside and on the outside. I just thought that was such a powerful statement. And, you know, we all have things that we may think are odd about us or whatever. Yeah. But as you get older, you find out that everybody does. And, you know, <laughs> everybody has things they think are not so terrific or whatever. So I think if you keep yourself interested, you're interesting. And if you're interesting, you're fun for anybody to be around. I think that's true. Including yourself. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah, being with yourself. Like, yeah, you're yourself. like, wow. Yeah, exactly. And also, if you get depressed, I mean, one of the women, she grew up with Queen Elizabeth of England, and she was her bridesmaid and knew her throughout her life. And she often had depression. And she said, you know, start trying to plow through it. But if you can't, get help. It's out there. I mean, that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I think with any illness or any mental thing, the more you push to get angry at it and try and find the answer to it, the more it helps you. And the role of mother and your story about Yuya Ma's mother is... Yes. That's what yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> I love that you talk about her. And what I thought was so funny about that was that the beautiful picture of her on her three-wheel bike... I love yes. it because my mother had the same bike really? and she was also the mother of a famous person. So yes. I just thought that was, I could relate to that. But yes, talking about mothers was very interesting as well. Well, you know, there's nobody like a mother. There's no one like a mother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even those that didn't actually have their own children, right? Their biological children. It's kind of neat when women take on that role as mother in different Absolutely. Even if it's not your your child. It can be I a younger that. person, a godchild or whatever. No, it's very true. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Health Gig. Such an awesome book. Really. It really is. You do great work and it's so nice to be here. Oh, oh God. Thank, well, thank you. you. And we can't wait for your new book. When yes. will that be done? Oh, it won't be done too soon. This book took 15 years. Now the publisher says you can't take 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing all of this. Yes. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>